everyone. Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. This is your host, Sarah, and I am doing it solo again this week as Darcy's still out studying and probably will not be back until the new year. I hope everyone is prepping for the holidays and having a wonderful Christmas season so far. I know we are. I just returned from a great vacation in Florida, which was not very Christmas-like, but still we had a blast. Let's jump right into today's episode. I've picked out two cases that I felt were a little bit similar. And the reason for that is because the killers in both of these cases continued to use the victim's emails to communicate with family members long after these two men had been killed. Interesting cases. Let's jump right in. The first case that we're going to talk about today is the murder of Chris Smith. Now, this particular case is not as common as some of the other ones that are out there, but it is an interesting case nonetheless. I got most of my information from a couple of articles online and from a Dateline NBC episode that came out that covered Chris Smith's life. If you want more information on this case, you can definitely jump into our show notes and we have links to the articles that we've used in this particular story. Starting from the beginning, Chris Smith was a surfer and he grew up in the central coast of California in Watsonville. He had a very close-knit family. Chris was raised in a Christian household. His family was comprised of his father, Steve, his mother, Debbie, and a brother, Paul, who was his younger brother. His father had been a former cop and a firefighter, and his mom was a teacher. During his life, Chris was known to be charismatic and carefree and creative, but he was also independent and a dreamer and believed that he could do anything. He grew up on a private lake called Kelly Lake in California, where they did a lot of jet skiing and boat activities, but they were also just minutes away from the coastline where they had the beaches so they could surf and wakeboard. Chris was kind of quirky. He was part surfer and part do-gooder. He was really eager to help those in need, and he would literally give the coat off his back if he thought it would help somebody else out. After high school, Chris went on to community college and discovered that he was a natural entrepreneur and did well in the tech world, as well as investing in gold. He invested in Krugerrands, and his investments in that particular field allowed him to make enough money where he was able to buy a Malibu condo and a BMW. He traveled quite a bit and obviously made really good money, and his family was really proud of him because he had pretty much come from the bottom and worked his way up to living quite prosperously. In 2009, he moved to Laguna Beach and partnered with a man named Ed Shin, where they began an advertising business called the 800 Exchange. Now, these two men, although they seemed to get along very well, were pretty much opposites. Ed was married with kids and Chris was kind of living a nomadic single life. Chris was this surfer and kind of low-key sports guy and Ed was more of a sports memorabilia collector. Chris was casual, he was into board shorts and sort of surf gear, and Ed was very professional as well as considered a pretty snappy dresser. Chris was creative and he did that part of the business and Ed was the numbers guy. 
But together, they shared that Christian faith that was such a strong part of their upbringing. And this allowed for the two to have a connection where they wanted to make money and work together. And they did that by creating this business where they would do ads for debt consolidation. People would then call into their 800 number and they would farm the people out to other companies who would deal with the debt consolidation. This company, 800 Exchange, immediately did well out of the gates. And knowing that, that the company was marked for success and doing so well, Chris brought his brother Paul on to work with him after a while. And the two had an amazing time. The office was really playful and fun and people did pranks and it seemed like they did a lot of dinners and team building. And around 2010, Chris became serious about his girlfriend as well and told his family that he thought that she might be the one. But Chris also loved the ocean and he worked long hours so that he could take the time off during the day to do his surfing. So he would go catch the waves early first thing in the morning so he could get the good waves in and then he would spend late nights in the office catching up for the time he had missed to surf. By June 2010, Chris became distracted despite the business success and it seemed that he was restless and a little bit stressed and kind of distracted at work. He seemed to be coming to sort of a conclusion that he did not want to be like one of the masses sitting in an office with all work and no play. He started feeling really penned in. His brother Paul and his family really tried to like, you know, pat him on the back and say, Chris, things are going to be fine. You just got to stick it out. You're going to get there. Don't be discouraged. And Chris's brother, Paul, and his family ended up taking a vacation to Oregon around that time as well. And Chris was supposed to pick them up at the airport, but he never showed up. This was around June 4th, 2010. The family sat at the airport and waited for Chris to pick them up, and Chris just simply never showed up, despite the fact that they kept trying to contact him, and they called him and called him and called him, but there was no answer and no word from Chris. So eventually the family just got into a taxi and went home. The next day, Paul talked to their parents, and they hadn't heard anything, and then they also went to Chris's partner, Ed, who told them something that was pretty shocking. Ed revealed that Chris had sold his share of the business, but he didn't tell his family any of this, and they were super shocked and a little bit hurt that Chris would not have shared such a big career move with them. Then Chris's parents get an email, and the email says that Chris is going on vacation to the Galapagos Islands and Costa Rica, and that he would check in later. The email seems like this decision on Chris's part is super sudden, but the family knows that Chris is a free spirit and a surfer and sort of this low-key dude, and they thought he did it. He finally, you know, got rid of the rat race, took off, and he's following his dreams. It was not unusual for them because he had talked about this sort of a situation before. He had just never pulled the trigger. And so they thought, hey, he's finally pulled the trigger. He's gone. He's going to be free. He's going to explore the world and just have this amazing time. So they were kind of happy for him, although they were sort of hurt that he had not shared this with them and warned them that he was going to be selling his business and leaving. 
The family also learned that around that time, Chris had dumped his girlfriend by text, and everyone was shocked about this as well, especially his brother, because he felt as though they had worked together on a daily basis that Chris would have said something to him if that was what was going on. And then, as if to make things even stranger, they get an email from Chris with pictures of this woman named Tiffany Taylor. Now, Tiffany was a Playboy playmate, and Chris claimed in his email that she was also his new travel partner and that he was going to be traveling the world with this woman and having adventures. The family said they were super shocked by this because this was not the type of girl that Chris usually went out with. But throughout this whole thing, Chris is sending them more emails about his travels and telling them how he's sailing around the world and claims that there is no internet or phones and that he has no way to contact them and that he has no urge to contact them, that he's enjoying himself and having this amazing time. In July 2010, Chris has been gone about a month and the emails then show up saying that he's going to be extending his vacation to Chile and Argentina. And the parents are starting to get worried by that point because there has been not a single phone call home. He even claims in his emails that he threw his phone away and didn't want it or to talk to anybody, which seemed even more odd to them. By August 2010, the family is super suspicious and they start asking questions. The emails are still coming steadily. So they start asking questions in the email. And Chris's father, Steve, is a former cop. So he knows this behavior is not like his son and starts to think he needs to think like a cop and ferret out whatever is going on here and who this might potentially be because he's starting to suspect that whoever is writing these emails is not his son. One of the questions he asks is what lake the family lived on when Chris was growing up and what type of boat they had. Immediately, an email response comes back saying Kelly Lake and the father, Steve, starts to think maybe things are okay. No one would really know this but his son. And his brother, Paul, is still working at the 800 Exchange. And about four months after Chris supposedly left to explore this vacation around the world, Ed has the whole office go on this business trip to Vegas. He claims that it's to get investors and it's this huge, lavish trip where everyone in the office went and they did fancy dinners and there were fancy cars. And Ed hired a man called a fixer in Vegas. This man's name was Johnny Vegas and he had specifically been hired to get guests for events, including Playboy Playmates for dinners. One of these dinners, Paul notices that there is a woman named Tiffany Taylor. He recognizes her immediately as the woman that supposedly left with his brother four months earlier. But Tiffany looks at him like he is absolutely crazy. And Paul looks over at Ed and Ed just shakes his head like it has to have been a different girl. And no one really knows what to do. The situation is a little bit awkward. They don't want to harass her since she claims that she doesn't know who his brother is. And at that time, the emails are still coming from Europe and India and Africa saying that Chris is angry and he's unraveling and he's starting to blame his family and he's contemplating suicide. The family is shocked because they didn't think things had been that bad. I mean, this guy's been out there exploring his dreams and having this supposed amazing time. So how could his life really be that bad? But by fall 2010, December in particular... 
Chris seems like he's gotten his life together. Things aren't that bad anymore. And he emails his brother with a new business idea and asks him to meet him in Costa Rica in February. But before he can do that, he claims he has one final thing to do in Africa. And that is to travel deep into the continent for a somewhat shady appearing business deal. He's going to sell his Krugerrands to finance this new venture, but he has to go into Rwanda and see this dealer. But the thing is, Chris is going in to see this dealer with the Krugerrands in his pocket, which seems very unusual and very unsafe. And the family starts to get this deep feeling of dread and concern. And instincts are just going off left and right for them, telling them that everything is wrong. And then... No more emails arrive after December 2010. The family then immediately thinks that Chris has been mugged or killed for the gold that he was carrying on his person. The family starts looking for him online. They start looking at Google Images. March 2011, nine months after Chris disappears, Chris's father goes to the U.S. State Department and turns over all of the emails from Chris, hoping that they can track Chris by his passport. The State Department then calls him back a few days later and tells him that Chris had never left the U.S. or at least never used his passport to leave the U.S. At that point, everyone is super perplexed. Steve then travels to Laguna Beach to 800 Exchange to talk to Ed Shin. And this is where things get a little bit shady. Ed claims that Chris had gotten a false passport. This was weird. Why would Chris need a false passport? Why would he just not travel under his own passport? So Steve goes to the Laguna Police Department and tries to file a missing persons report, but the department refuses. They say that Chris is an adult, he's a full-grown man, he's fully capable of making his own decisions and taking off if he wants to. They just weren't suspicious at that point. Police then turn to Ed Shin, Chris's former business partner, for help. By spring 2011, it had been one year since Chris had left, and everything seemed very strange since there was no further communication from Chris. In June of 2011, police officially interview Ed Shin. Ed recalls that back in the summer of 2010, Chris wanted out of the business and conveyed to Ed that he wanted to sell his portion of the business so he could travel to Costa Rica and surf. Ed claims that Chris came to him and made him an offer to buy him out. The offer would be for a total of $1 million. About 250000 of that would be in gold coins and another 250000 would be wired into Chris's bank account. Then, once the business sold, Ed would wire Chris another $500,000. Ed also claims that Chris thought the U.S. was on the brink of economic collapse and wanted to be out of the country when that happened. He says that Chris was really spouting a lot of conspiracy theories and had a darker side that involved drinking excessively, using sleeping pills and other drugs to inspire creativity for ads that he was writing all night long when he was doing cocaine as well. Ed claims that Chris worked extremely hard for four to five days and then would crash. 
He also claims that Chris came in early in the morning into the office on June 4th, 2010. He claims that he discovered a mess in the office and there was urine and vomit all over the floor and that Chris had trashed the office. Ed claims that he kind of calmed his business partner down and told him, hey, let's get out of here. We need to calm you down. We need to get things under control. He cleaned up the office and then told the employees to come in later after he gave them some time off so that he could clean up the mess in the office, and he claims that he took Ed to Vegas for the weekend to decompress. This would give them time to finalize the deal and say goodbye. He also claims that Ed and Chris drove back Monday, June 7th with the agreement between them signed. They shook hands and then Chris took off. But police want to know why Chris didn't use his own passport. And Ed claims that they had met a guy in Vegas, this Johnny Vegas guy, who was the same man that they had used in the party four months after Chris's dear's disappearance to obtain the Playboy Playmates to come in for the investors. Ed claims that Chris got a fake passport from Johnny Vegas and picked it up in Los Angeles. Ed claims that he has proof of all of this and that he would send them the receipts and the emails to show all of this. At the same time, private investigators were hired by the property manager that used to rent out the office space for 800 exchange. Property managers hire a man named Joe DeLue. He was hired to run a skip trace for 800 exchange to find out what had happened to them because they had vacated the office space without paying their rent on time. So there was an outstanding balance of rent due. Now, Deleu's office found that 800 Exchange had transferred to another building that was not too far from the private investigator's office. At the same time, the Laguna Beach police are also looking for 800 Exchange so they can question them a little bit further about Chris's disappearance. Detective DeLue investigates and talks to Chris's dad and starts gathering the emails from Chris that are supposedly sent from overseas. And he starts looking through all of them and sees that something seems off. It seems like the writer is trying way too hard to show that he is Chris. Then he starts looking over the email that was sent asking where Chris grew up and what sort of boat they had when he was growing up. And he realizes that whoever wrote the email had never answered the boat question. At that point, looking through the language and looking through the emails in totality, the investigators start to believe that Chris Smith was not the one writing the emails. They go back to Chris's old office space and inspect the area with a fine-tooth comb. The landlord let them into the old space, and they start to notice stains by Chris's old office. There's also the smell of heavy chemical cleaner. And this is in the spot where Ed claims Chris threw up. The investigators look at the light switches and find blood around the doorframe. Once they see that blood, they're pretty much sure that something bad has happened here, and they call the sheriff to come out with police texts to take samples. They notice there's blood on the ceiling tiles and under the carpet on the concrete. They test it, and they see that it's positive for human blood. All the blood on the scene belongs to one person, and that person was Chris Smith. And there is no way that that much blood could be present in splatters all over the place and that Chris Smith would still be alive. Once that 
conclusion is made, this is now a homicide investigation. And they start looking through with luminol everywhere. And there is blood in the break room, on the doorways, in the hallways, in the office, everywhere they're finding blood. And investigators know something is up when they start talking to friends and family and Chris's old girlfriend. This jilted ex-girlfriend of his was a little bit angry, and she claims that Chris was sometimes erratic and paranoid and volatile, and that he was not necessarily the kind, sweet, and amazing person that the family claims that he was. And I think part of this had to do with the fact that she was dumped so unceremoniously through text messages, so there was probably a little bit of bitterness there, and she may not have given him the most glowing review after something like that happened. However, police began to look a little bit closer at Chris Smith's business partner, Ed Shin. On the outside, he looks ambitious, outgoing, intelligent. He had sailed through the University of Los Angeles at San Diego, and after he graduated, he married and had kids. This guy was a faithful Christian and a churchgoer, so from the outside he looked innocent. But when they started to look into Ed Shin's past, they found there were some very dark places. Back in 2008, Ed had a sports memorabilia business, and he wasn't doing too well. This business was kind of tanking, and he meets a man named Joseph Gray. Gray kind of takes Ed Shin under his wing and loans him money, helps him get a house, gets him some marriage counseling, and even gives him a job. It was at this job that he met Chris Smith. And the two got along so well that they left Joseph Gray's company to start their own business together. Now, from the outside, Ed looks like he's a great dad, he's well-spoken, he's easygoing, and sympathetic to the situation at first, and he's giving the police everything that they need. He's telling them he's going to send them emails and receipts, and he's got answers for every question. But Ed Shin had secrets, multiple secrets. He had a shady past. He loved Vegas. He loved the high life and private planes and business trips where he could show off extravagant cars and planes, and he liked to stay in expensive hotels with beautiful women, and he had a spending problem. People that knew him closely, including employees, said that he would spend 10-hour stretches gambling. He was not who people thought he was and who co-workers and friends saw him as. He had this dark past. He had this insatiable need to gamble and to have a lot of money that he could throw around. Police started to believe at that point that he was a craps addict and that he was fueling that by funneling money from businesses he had worked for and with. It was then revealed that this was the situation that happened with Joseph Gray's business. After this man took Ed Shin under his wing, got him a job, introduced him to his new business partner, he repaid this man by secretly manipulating bank information and changing it to his own accounts. When he left the company, he took leads and funds with him that equaled up to $2.5 million from Joseph Gray's company. 
but Joseph Gray wasn't going to take that sitting down. He had charges pressed against Ed for embezzlement. Ed, not wanting to spend any time in jail and wanting to avoid stiff penalties, worked out a deal with Joseph Gray to pay restitution in the amount of approximately $700,000. This money was to be paid back to Joseph Gray in order to avoid a prison sentence. But Ed was struggling to pay this restitution with his normal salary, even doing well with 800 exchange. So he starts hiding things and taking money and funneling it from the business at 800 exchange as well. At the same time, he's not paying vendors and not paying rent and telling everyone that things have been paid so that he can maintain his normal life with his wife and four kids and hide his gambling problem. Then Laguna Beach police get an urgent call from the feds. Ed Shin's passport had been flagged while this whole case was going on, and it appeared that Ed had boarded a flight to Canada. But police caught him just in time and pulled him from the plane. He was still on probation from this earlier case, and so it seemed super shady that Ed would be wanting to take off and go to Canada. At that point, they confront him about the Chris, the Chris Smith case yet again and the blood that they found in the office. Now, initially, Ed denies everything and says that he never touched Chris and he had nothing to do with this. Then the police announce that they are arresting Ed Shin and they leave the room. When they come back, Ed Shin changes his whole story. He claims that there had been a fight between the two men and that something had happened during that, but he claims that the whole thing was in self-defense, that Chris had become irrational and paranoid. He claims that Chris had finally lost his marbles, come unglued, and attacked his business partner, Ed. Now, explaining the things like the blood on the ceiling and the door frames and etc., Ed claims that Chris had grabbed him and they had grappled and there was jumping in the air and a whole bunch of different activities within the office where the two men are rolling and fighting and kicking and grabbing and jumping through the air and these wild kind of acrobatic moves to explain the blood that was all over the place. But he claims that Chris had actually hit his head on a desk during this grappling fight and fell onto the floor and died. But where was the body? investigators get Ed's phone records by that point and see that Ed's phone was way out in the desert. It's pinging off these cell phone towers near the Mexican border. And this is the area where they believe Chris's body was dumped. His phone had actually pinged twice during what they suspect was two trips. So the police go out to the area where the phone had pinged off of and they bring out searchers and they don't find anything. There is no body to be found. Then they start begging Ed for information and he refuses to disclose anything. So seven years after the death of Chris, Ed Shin goes to trial. The prosecution believes that this is a case of greed, that Ed wanted to gamble in Vegas and live this extravagant lifestyle. And in order to do that, he needed the money from 800 Exchange because the company was doing extremely well and, and was profiting in the current economy. Police believe that Chris suspected Ed was stealing money and had confronted him. 
He also wanted new rules to prevent Ed from taking more money and from being shady with their new company. But Ed was starved for cash and troubled and desperate. And this was the reason they believed the sudden and violent attack occurred. They also believe this is the reason for the brazen cover-up, that Ed had used the email address just minutes after killing his business partner to talk to the lawyer and, and to fake a buyout so that Ed would get everything. They then believe that Ed cleaned up the office and told everyone they worked with to work from home so that he would have time to clean up the mess as he posed as Chris and sent emails and texts to dump the girlfriend. He even hired a man named Kenny Kraft to move into Chris's old apartment, get rid of his possessions, and to help cover this crime up. Now, Kenny Kraft actually was granted immunity to testify against Ed. Ed Shin took the stand in his own defense, hoping to convince the jury that he was smarter and that he was a good guy and just got stuck in this really bad situation. He claims that he was a thief, maybe dishonest, perhaps, but that he was no killer, that Chris had attacked him and killed himself by hitting his head, that Chris was angry and volatile and alcoholic. And this was only a matter of time before Chris would explode and something bad would happen. Ed was also claiming that Chris had helped him with his initial embezzlement scheme from the first company with Joseph Gray. He claims that Chris was unstable dishonest, that Ed had threatened to rat him out, that he was the original person to plan all the embezzlement. He claims that at that point, Chris grabbed him by the throat, and in order to avoid this fight with his friend, he had to grapple and wrestle and do this whole scene where there's this unbelievable jump into the air, and that Chris jumped at him and hit his head. Because of the embezzlement charges that he'd previously had, Ed Shin thinks the cops wouldn't believe him, so he didn't call 911, and he's pretty much in a panic by that point, and claimed that he had called Johnny Vegas, his old Vegas fixer, so that he would help get rid of the body. Ed then also claimed that he spent between ten dollars and $15,000 in cash, and that Johnny had procured an Eastern European guy that was going to meet him at a gas station and get rid of the body. He had provided the office information, and this tall Russian guy showed up and removed the body from the office. After cleaning up the best that he could... Ed was initially planning to flee to Mexico. He had rented a car and he had stocked up on some beef jerky from Costco and was planning on making a run for it. But he claims that he had second thoughts because he didn't want to leave his kids behind. But police are not buying this story and neither is the jury. They just simply cannot believe that there would be so much of Chris's blood in the office and that Ed would emerge without injury. And they ask him about this, and Ed claims that he was trained to defend himself with some martial arts type stuff, and that this mid-air collision could explain why there was blood on the ceiling. But this story is just crazy, and there are so many inconsistencies, and Ed had changed his story so many times that no one is believing him. They also note that Ed was perfectly composed in his email to the attorney. He was cool calm and super chill about this whole thing in dissolving this partnership that he had been in with Chris. Then the prosecutors point out some really interesting facts about Ed. 
besides the whole embezzlement issue where he had taken money from this man who had taken him under his wing, Ed had also faked his own kidnapping as a young man to try and extort $1 million from his very own parents. Prosecution got email evidence on this, and this whole thing starts to unravel for Ed Shin. The police also interview Johnny Vegas, this man who supposedly helped Ed Shin and find out there was no Russian guy. There was no fake passport. None of this had actually happened. They were sure at that point that Ed had buried Chris's body somewhere in the desert. The jury in this case deliberated for about an hour and they found Ed guilty of first degree murder for financial gain. Clearly, they were not believing any of Ed Shin's BS stories. He had killed his business partner, this 33-year-old man who had such a promising future. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in February 2019. So this was a pretty recent case. And this case, I find so interesting that this man, this business partner, thought that he could get away with this scheme. And the fact that he emailed the family and posed as Chris for so long is so crazy to me. He got away with this for a long period of time. And it was nearly 10 years after the, after Chris Smith's murder before Edgeson was actually sentenced and went to jail. Ed tried to get a new trial, claiming that there was evidence of Chris's brother having some coins and some other theft type issues with Chris's possessions that might indicate somebody else was involved in Chris's murder. But then this is also dropped. Ed tries to mitigate his own involvement in this, claiming that he was under the influence of pain medications and drugs and things like that, and that he was super stressed out about the embezzlement charges, and this kind of led to him making irrational and crazy decisions. But clearly, the jury and the judges and the state didn't believe any of Ed Shin's BS stories. He does have several appeals pending, and we will keep you guys posted as we hear about what happens with these. Now, the second case that we have to discuss for the evening is a very similar case in that the killer of this man also communicated with family and friends via email pretending to be the victim. This case is a little bit different, though. This is the case of Johnny Altinger. We're going to start out Friday, October 3rd, 2008, a Canadian couple is out walking their dog in a quiet neighborhood in Mill Woods in South Edmonton, Canada. Suddenly, a dark-haired man stumbled out in front of them from an alley, hunched over, and he sort of falls and screams at their feet, claiming he's being mugged. Then they see a hooded man with a hockey mask following this man, who disappears, calling out in a friendly and joking manner over a fence. At that point, this couple out walking their dog is super freaked out and they rush to take off and go home and call the police because they say this man was pleading for help. Police come to the area and they cannot find either the victim or the alleged man in the hockey mask. There's nothing they can do at that point other than just file a report saying what they saw. 
Fast forward to 38-year-old Johnny Altinger. He lived by himself in Edmonton, Canada, and was employed as a pipeline worker in an oil-filled equipment manufacturing company called Argus. He worked in quality control. He was very close with his mother and brother and had a very tight-knit group of friends from school who described him as good-natured and lighthearted and fun and generous and thoughtful and affectionate, although he was a little bit quiet. His hobbies included motorbikes, computers, and he had two motorbikes that he actually enjoyed riding himself. He also liked paintball, and he was into New Age spirituality, and he loved Elton John. In addition, he was a lifelong computer technology buff. He was always helping out family and friends, and he was very, very generous and would have given anyone the shirt off his back, much like Chris Smith did. Johnny soon took advantage of the computer online revolution and the internet when it started to explode in the early 2000s. He also began online dating at that point, picking up on two popular sites, Plenty of Fish and Lava Life. It appeared that Johnny went on lots of dates. He really liked the site Plenty of Fish because he was able to connect with a lot of different kinds of people. While he was dating on that site, he found a 35-year-old woman named Jen who had a bikini-clad profile picture, and they talked back and forth with banter and laughter, and the two seemed to really connect over similar interests. Friday, October 10th, 2008, where the two agree to meet up for the first time. And this is where things get a little bit shady, because Jen doesn't provide Johnny with his street address. It seems a little bit strange to me that someone would meet at their own home on a first date anyway, but to provide something as weird as step-by-step directions to a location seems even crazier to me. But this Jen woman claimed she was just trying to be safe and she had emailed specific directions through a garage and into a house before Johnny was able to meet her. She claimed, quote, I want to play very much, but I have to be cautious as I'm sure you can understand. All of this sounds super fake to me. She also says, quote, on a lighter note, if we really get on, you said you had four days off. How long can I keep you? Sort of indicating that she is willing to get down and dirty with this guy on a pretty immediate basis. But Johnny Being a safe guy and knowing that he had to protect himself to some degree had actually phoned a friend before he left on his date and told this friend about Jen. He also gave a couple different people a copy of the directions that he had got from Jen leading to her home. But when Johnny gets to the garage that was indicated in the directions, there is a guy in there. This guy is supposedly renting the garage space to direct and create films. Now, there's no sign of Jen anywhere near here, but this man shows Johnny around and claims that he's making a movie about serial killers, shows Johnny the set and the props, and Johnny is disappointed that Jen's not there, but is like, hey, I'm going to check this out because I already made this long drive to come see her. This man in the garage tells Johnny that Jen is stuck in traffic and can't make it. Johnny then gives up and goes home and tells his friend all about his aborted date. After he had called his friend when he got home, Johnny hangs up, 
But then he got another message right after that from Jen saying she was home and that Johnny should try coming over again. He contacts his friend, the same one that he had indicated he was going on the date with the first time around, and tells him that he's going to try going back over to Jen's house later that day. But then there's no word from Johnny. No texts, no phone calls. And Johnny was typically a super reliable guy, and this sort of action was completely out of character. Then, by Sunday, October 12th, 2008, Johnny was a no-show for a motorbike lesson that he was supposed to have with Dale. So Dale starts to get a little bit worried at that time, and by Monday, October 13th, Dale, this friend of his, gets an email from Johnny saying Johnny's met some super hot, great woman, this Jen woman, who's taking him on a vacation in Costa Rica. He claims there's not going to be any phones there and that he'll check his email periodically to keep in touch with his friends. But everyone that knows Johnny knows he wouldn't skip work for a last minute vacation. Not only that, but he didn't like warm climate vacations. They claimed that he had returned from a Hawaii trip recently and he hated the heat. Everyone knew that he wouldn't leave without calling and letting people know where he was. He also would not have left his motorbikes out. He would have asked somebody to store them. They also noticed that he's signing off on his emails with his name. And his friends usually knew that when he did email them, he signed off in a way that was very different from what he was signing off on in these emails that were coming through. Dale, his friend, then tests him out by sending an email, much like Chris Smith's father, giving him sort of a test question where he's supposed to indicate whether this is really Johnny or not. And the question involves picking up Johnny's mother or brother from the airport. Well, Johnny never responded back to that email. Also, at the same time, multiple friends are getting the same emails and they're trying to write Johnny back and figure out what's going on. And he's not responding to any of them. That same day, there's a Facebook update that claims Johnny is going to the Caribbean for a vacation. He also changes his relationship status to in a relationship and emails his employer saying he's quitting his job. His employer, though, emails him back right away and asks where to mail the last paycheck, but they never get a response back from Johnny, and the paycheck is never collected. Simultaneously, MSN Messenger statuses for Johnny are updated, as well as his Facebook status saying he's loving the sunshine, and friends and family are starting to get concerned. Although Johnny is saying he doesn't have phones where he's at and there's no reception, he's having fun and he's okay and he's having the time of his life, they are really getting suspicious of him. His friend, One of his friends then offers him a toll-free number that's paid and tells him to call or they were going to follow up with the Edmonton Police Department and report Johnny as missing. But Johnny never responds back to that message and there is no call. So the police are alerted at that time, but they don't think anything is suspicious in this activity because adults run away and go on vacation all the time. They do not, they do not let Johnny's friends file a missing person report because Johnny doesn't appear to be missing to them. Not only that, but he's communicating via email. So is he really missing? But his friends are not willing to give up on this. Something seems shady and they can smell it from a mile away. 
They then go over to Johnny's apartment and break in. They see that his motorcycles are uncovered outside and his red Mazda 323 is missing. They also notice there are dirty dishes and things have not been cleaned up. And this just does not look in any way like Johnny has packed to leave for a long vacation in the Caribbean. They notice that his laptop and printer are missing, and in his desk drawer, they find his passport, which to them is conclusive proof that Johnny could not have left, and there is foul play involved. Friday, October 17th, 2008, they take this to the police, and one week after his disappearance, police open a missing persons report. They start to look through airport records and at cameras in the area and all that sort of thing, and Johnny's name does not appear on any passenger list for international flights. So there is no way that Johnny could have left and gone on this vacation. But police tracked down two friends had been forwarded the directions for the first date with this Jen person that he met on Plenty of Fish. Then they know where to start looking for Johnny. The directions they obtained from these two friends of Johnny's led them to a South Edmonton quiet residential area called Mill Woods. When they get there around midnight, the garage was padlocked. And they peeked through a small window and saw light inside, but everything that they could see looked clean and orderly. And when they knocked on the door at the adjoining residence to the garage, they got no answer there either. They tried to get a search warrant then, but because there was no evidence of any sort of crime, that request for a search warrant was denied by the Canadian courts. Next, the police contact the real estate company that leases the garage, and they find out the garage is being leased to a man named Mark Twitchell. So Mark is an independent filmmaker born in Edmonton, Alberta. He dreamt of making big-time blockbuster films and had also directed some minor films about Star Wars and a full-length fan prequel set a few days prior to the original film. He also recorded a bunch of other different things, And in 2008, he shot a short horror film called House of Cards at the garage that he was renting in Edmonton that the police were led to by the directions given to Johnny's friends. Saturday, October 18th, 2008, police call up this Mark Twitchell guy and tell him that they have a problem with the garage. He seems a little bit irritated, but comes to the garage to respond to the police and says that someone has been using the garage without his knowledge and left the lights on. He also seems surprised because he says the padlock on the door was not the one he had left there, and he claimed that he didn't know the combination. The police then ask him if it's okay if they remove the lock, and he agrees. He explains to them that he only rented the garage and the house was rented to multiple foreign workers. And he said as well that there was something that had been recently burned in an oil drum and there were charred objects inside, but he claimed he didn't know what had happened, that it had not been burned when he saw it last. He also says that other things in the garage were out of place. He says there's some duct tapes that's been used, some some garbage bags were gone, and the cleaner bottle is half empty. It's almost as though he's giving a story so he can sort of explain things to the police. He has answers for everything, much like Ed Shin. 
When the police ask him why the windows were covered, he says it's because he was filming in that garage and he was doing nighttime movies. They also find red splatters that look like blood, but Mark explains to them that it's fake, that he makes movies, and everything should be fine. At that point, Mark gives a statement to the police and agrees to go back to the police station to answer questions. As he's interviewed, he's sharing his film career, and he seems kind of to be bragging about his own projects, and he's really only interested in talking about himself. He actually describes the process of making fake blood and points out all the movie things that he did and how he had created this film about a serial killer in the place where this man had disappeared. And when the police say, when the police question him about this being the last site that Johnny Eltinger was seen, he kind of laughs it off and says that somebody must be watching him and he's kind of creeped out. He provides a list of people who worked on his film and claims he had never heard of Johnny Eltinger, did not know who this guy was and did not know anything about Jen, this supposed person that had given the directions to the garage. A background check by the police of Mark Twitchell showed that he comes from a good family and has no history of violence or crime. Mark is then released after that interview and told to call them if he remembers anything. But the next day, Mark sends another email to investigators saying he remembers some weird stuff that's possibly related to this investigation on Johnny Altinger. Mark claims that his car was broken into and certain things were stolen, like sunglasses, loose cash, change, receipts, and some that had his address on it, in particular one with the garage address. He claims that he saw his front door unlocked one day, but nothing was missing. He also says that a tall, dark-haired man top, tapped on his window October 15th while he was at a gas station asking if he wanted to buy a Mazda 323. Now, Mark claims that this man who knocked on his window at the gas station said that he was getting a brand new car from a sugar mama and was taking off on an expensive vacation and needed to get rid of his car quickly for whatever cash Mark had on him. Mark only had about $40 and he paid the man this cash and followed the man to his car. But he also claims he got a super weird vibe from this man who was selling the car when he handed him the keys and registration and everything that went along with the car. Now, Mark says that he did not know how to drive a manual transmission, so he called a friend who collected the car and stored it for him. Then Mark appears to be getting a little bit more freaked out, saying that he thinks there's someone that had broken into his car that knew where he lived and he feels super violated. But the police are only getting more and more suspicious of 29-year-old Mark Twitchell. He's married and lives with his wife and daughter in the Riverside District of St. Alberta, Canada. His wife, Jess, is his second, and he had met her online dating, and the two had married in 2006. But by 2008, the marriage was strained, and the two were living in separate bedrooms. Jess complained about Mark's filmmaking and said it was a waste of time, and she really didn't like the fact that Mark was into cosplay and dressing up like Wolverine and Predator and all of his interest in Star Wars. Mark was attending way too many cosplay conferences and sci-fi conventions and sort of all of that stuff was leading her to believe that he was obsessed with things that he shouldn't be obsessed with. She also claims that he was having an affair with a woman that he had met back in college and that was why the two were having so much trouble. Mark was said to be attending counseling but he really had issues with lying. 
But Mark is questioned again at that point and asked if he can recall anything related to the case. He says he recalls that the man who sold him the Mazda had a Celtic knot tattoo on his neck. This confirmed to them that this was the Mazda that was Johnny's missing car. But still, Mark insists that he has nothing to do with Johnny. He didn't know that it was Johnny and that he'd only bought the car, that he had nothing to do with Johnny or his disappearance. Then the police also get some testimony from residents near Mark's garage saying they saw Mark change the padlock earlier in the week and he was caught in a lie. Then they start searching the oil drum or the barrel in Mark's garage and find glasses that Johnny was known to wear. All of this evidence is starting to build up against Mark Twitchell, and he is getting rattled. But he continues to insist that he is innocent, despite the fact that the police seize his cars and get a search warrant for his house. The next day, they find a gas can in the car and a Toshiba laptop that appears to be stained with blood. They also find blood in the car and an eight-inch hunting knife. There's also a post-it list with instructions that list destroying a wallet, cleaning the kill room, etc. Who the heck would list murder steps on a post-it note? I mean, this is completely baffling to me. But they also find a paperback book of the Dexter series from TV, which is a series about a serial killer. When police test the cars and his home with luminol, as well as the garage, they find blood on the floor and walls of the garage, and as well as blood in the car. Now, at the same time, people are starting to believe that maybe this is a publicity stunt by Mark Twitchell in order to get his movies the publicity that he really wants. But by that point, police were monitoring Mark's calls and emails. And they start looking in the surrounding areas for any kind of police reports. And they find a report from another man who claims that he was attacked in a similar fashion near the garage. And this is the attack that I mentioned at the beginning of the story. One of the key pieces of evidence that was presented in this case was a document that was supposedly deleted from the computer that the police took into custody. And the document was titled SK Confessions, which stood for Serial Killer Confessions. This document was deleted by Mark, but they were able to pull it up. And the story kind of begins with this passage that says, quote, This story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer, unquote. This particular story presented an account of the narrator's planning, failed first attempt, and successful second attempt to lure a man into his garage and murder him. And in this story, this particular character uses fake online dating profiles as bait. It also went on to describe the process of dismembering the victim's body and attempts to dispose of the remains. During the trial, Mark Twitchell comes out and admits to killing Altinger and authoring the document, but says that he acted in self-defense, as they always do. He described the document as a fiction based on fact and said that he planned on, Alter planned on using all of this, including Altinger's death, deliberately in order to craft this super compelling story to sell copies of his book. 
there was also another document found on Twitchell's laptop that didn't make its way into evidence for the jury during the trial. This document was titled The Profile of a Psychopath and was believed by investigators who had been written by Mark. And it was a pretty detailed self-analysis of his personality and behavior. It was released after the trial ended because it was deemed too inflammatory so that it would compromise him being able to get a fair trial. In the meantime... The police also find a chat log from a woman. Contents of their conversations were pretty sinister, with detailed directions on how to kill and get away with gruesome murder, including things like grinding up bones and sharing information about what worked and what didn't work as far as killing another person. This chat log also exposed that hours before the killings, Mark had encouraged this woman not to tell anyone else or go to the police with the information that he was providing to her. But he was also sharing details about possibly killing Johnny Altinger, although he had not mentioned the name. He had shared how he'd burned the body in a barrel. Now, during Johnny's trial, this SK Confessions story played a huge and critical part of the trial. Additionally, extensive media coverage of this case created a lot of debate in and out of the courtroom. Observers that were looking in on this were arguing for and against the media reporting the sensational details of this crime. And prior to the criminal trial, the Crown prosecutors and defense sought publication bans and sealing orders over police evidence. This would prevent the media from reporting on the details of the case until the jury could hear it during the future trial. The media fought this tooth and nail. There were details here that were so crazy, especially the imitations of Dexter Morgan by Mark Twitchell and the fact that this man was trying to imitate this TV show according to what they could see. The judge agreed in this case that the sealing order should come into place and there was a publication ban that was allowed because there was a real risk that pre-trial publicity would undermine the constitutional rights of this man that was about to go on trial. However, once the media bans were lifted after the trial had begun, a large media presence attended this and reported on the trial, including programs like Dateline NBC and 48 Hours. But following his first-degree murder conviction, Mark Twitchell used this extensive, this extensive media coverage of his case as grounds for an appeal, arguing that the media attention surrounding his case was so extensive and so blatant and so overly sensationalized that it was unreasonable to expect any unsequestered jury to have remained uninfluenced by it regardless of the judge's instructions in this case. However, this appeal was abandoned in 2012. Now, another portion of this trial that was going on simultaneously was attempted murder charges for the first victim that we described in the beginning of this story. This man testified that he was lured using the website Plenty of Fish expecting a date with this woman. Much like the case of Johnny Altinger, this man was attacked by a man in a mask with a stun baton when he arrived at the garage that was rented by Mark Twitchell. This man, the first alleged victim, escaped with his life, and Crown prosecutors had not immediately decided if they would pursue this charge of attempted murder in addition to the conviction of first-degree murder that was already in place. And 
especially since with Canadian courts, this would not add any time to the life sentence that Twitchell had already received. So on June 17, 2011, an attempted murder charge against Twitchell was stayed in the courts, in the Canadian courts, meaning that they could resurrect this charge within one year after the initial charges were filed. But eventually the attempted murder charges were dropped. Detectives were adamant they had gathered a huge amount of evidence revealing that Twitchell himself admitted on the witness stand to committing this attack and that this was in connection with the case of Johnny Altinger's murder and that these two things should be heard simultaneously as they were part of the same transaction of Mark Twitchell's attempt to become a serial killer. Under Canadian law, charges can only be heard together if they're linked in some way. So you can see the dilemma here. The courts were not convinced that the first attack and the murder of Johnny Altinger were part of the same transactions. Because of that, the courts ordered the charges of these two men were severed and should be heard separately. And after the first-degree murder conviction was obtained April 2011 and secured a maximum of sentence of life in prison with no parole eligibility for 25 years, this eliminated any need to proceed with more charges in the first case where Mark had attempted to kill the first potential victim. This case got a lot of media attention, not just because Mark Twitchell attempted to communicate with friends and family using Johnny's social media and email, but because this was sort of patterned after an obsession that this man had with the series Dexter on TV. In any case, this was a super interesting case for me, and I really started to see the connections between this case and the case of Chris Smith. Neither one of the bodies of these men have ever been found, so we have no way of confirming the exact cause of death for either victim. Additionally, we only have stories from the perpetrator's lips that very likely tell a dramatically different story than what actually happened to either man. These stories leave some huge gaps in what likely happened and prevent us from telling the full story of Johnny Altinger or Chris Smith. Despite the fact that justice has been served in these cases, the families of these two men have no closure because they're unable to put their loved ones to rest. As a society, we're surprised and horrified by the end of these two men's lives. Both had so much to live for and so much potential that was yet untapped. Both of these men had a positive outlook on life, good jobs, and seemingly normal lives. Both men were interested in travel and ready to explore the world. Both were good-natured, kind, and generous with their friends and family, with both their time and money. Either of these men would have given the shirt off their back to help those around them in need. Both of these men trusted people they interacted with and lost their lives in unsuspected ways. The killers of these two men then interacted with the men's families for months afterwards by email, leading them to believe both men had run off to explore the world. Ultimately, police and investigators could look at the IP addresses and see that they did not come from where they were purported to come from. In both instances, the killers were men that appeared normal on the outside but had a seething, bubbling cauldron of evil within them. These cases seem similar to me as cautionary tales. You never can really trust those around you. 
In the first case, we've all learned that trusting someone in the internet is risky at best, particularly when it comes to online dating. Johnny did the right things in telling people where he was going, but he should have met in a public place when interacting with someone from a dating website. Chris knew his business partner was shady and took steps to correct the path he was on. But like Johnny, he never could have suspected the person who committed the crime against him would kill him. These cases seemed so surprising and so crazy that either man thought they could get away with their insane plans. And yet both men did get away with their crimes for a while. Luckily, both cases ended in similar fashion with the perpetrator being apprehended and brought to justice. Both of these cases seem so crazy, it is true, and so elaborately planned. But the scariest part in all this is that it doesn't seem possible that either of these crimes could have been prevented. Both killers lacked a conscience and were on a crash course with criminal actions that were bound to leave an awful trail of devastation in their wake. What can we learn from these horrible circumstances? The only thing we can think of is to not trust anyone, and that is a sad and terrible prospect. All right, folks, that's going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you want to interact with us on social media, we're at the BFD podcast, or you can shoot us an email if you have questions, comments, or concerns. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about bizarre, crazy, and twisted cases of true crime and other interesting topics. Until next week, stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!